On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to open an app or it'll also be printed on the inside of your bulletin. Uh, But John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And as we uh, dive in, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving in my car and a song came on. It was Memories by Maroon 5. Anybody? Anybody know that song? Uh, cheers to the one. Yeah, you know that? Everybody's like, oh, that one. I'm surprised you could figure it out by <laughs> what I just did. But anyway, um, or Taco Bell Cannon and D might have been what that sounded like as well. Either way, um, two things happened in my heart uh, when I heard that song. One, there was great joy and happiness, right? Um, and, and, but then at the same time, it was met pretty quickly by a sense of sadness. And, and here's why. That song became popular uh, there towards the end of 2019, around New Year's of 2020, or at least in my world it became popular. I don't know about the rest of it, but uh, that's when I became aware of it. And about that time, we had a New Year's Eve celebration at my house. And we invited a couple of families over, and we hung out. And, and I will just tell you this. Have you ever had those moments, somebody who was there is laughing right now, um, have you ever had those moments that just feel like this idyllic time where you just want to bottle it and go, I want to remember this, right? You know, you want to take a picture, but you know that picture's not going to do it justice. You want to, you know, record it, but you know, it's just not going to capture the emotion and the feeling of that time. And, and I think what made that moment great was, first of all, there were great friends, there was great food, there was good drink, and we laughed till our faces hurt, Right? Uh, in the end, we're dancing in the living room and the ball drops and the kids are looking at us. I've got a picture of like confused looks on kids' faces where they're like, what are you doing? You know, uh, but, but it was just this idyllic moment where you're like, I, I don't really want this to end, right? And so when I hear that song, I think of that. Now, here's where the other side comes in. Um, first of all, uh, well, the other side comes in with the sadness uh, where um, within about a year, Uh, There were great trials that faced many of the families who were at that party. Uh, Within three months of this time, we were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, And then a couple of months later, we're standing on the front lawns of of some of our dearest friends as their moving truck drove away from their property. And I just sat there and cried. And so it's weird, just just like many of us might have 
had that sense of the idyllic moment, have you also experienced that time where you, you almost can't even recall the joy of that moment in your past? Where it's been overwhelmed by something, a, a pandemic, illness, a mental health crisis. You know, I was talking to a friend recently and, and we were talking about this idea of this abundant moment uh, or abundant moments in our lives. And they're like, you know, at my age, I feel like all those moments have passed. Maybe there's great relational lack. Have you ever experienced both of those, right, pushing against each other? Well, friends, there's a couple things that, uh, as I wrestled with that a couple of weeks ago, that, that you know, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of. One is that we're actually wired to experience that sort of abundant life, right? I think the Lord puts that longing in our hearts. But the other side of that is equally true, that, that in a fallen world, there is lack of abundance, right? On this side of Genesis chapter 3, we are going to always feel like it's not quite there. Abundant is just a fancy word for saying enough, right? Do you ever feel like there's just not quite enough? Relationship, happiness, joy, you know, for those of you who are replacing, you know, uh, different things in your house, you know, hardware to put in so you don't have to go to Lowe's 18 more times, right? Like we always feel like, ah, there's something lacking. Well, friends, today, John, as we as we approach this wedding in Cana, I think what John is trying to show us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we try to wrestle with who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the one who brings true abundance. So that's where we're headed today. Uh, So let me pray for us and then we'll dive into our text. Lord, as I look over this room, I see friends who are in a season of great abundance and joy. And so Lord, in some ways, the words of this sermon will be easy to absorb. But Lord, I see many Many, in fact, all of us at some point, but many who are in deep seasons of, of not even being able to locate joy on the radar. Lord, where there's deep loss and grief. And, and so, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that your word will minister deeply to us today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will go with my words. Lord, will you protect me from saying anything that is untrue? And Lord, most importantly, we pray that your spirit will Uh, use your word and change our hearts this morning we love you lord we pray these things in your name amen all right so we finally made it out of chapter one congratulations right what did that take five weeks okay i promise we're going to pick up speed a little bit a little bit Uh, but we're getting ready to enter into the second major section of this book so uh, chapters two to twelve is what's called the book of signs it's the book of signs and you'll see it even in the text as we look at verse 11 this is the first of the signs jesus did so john talks about jesus's miracles as signs so this is jesus's first miracle and his miracles are serving a function they're signs now if you're driving on the interstate right uh on the blue route or wherever you're going and and there is a sign that's giving directions we've said this before you don't get out of your car and look at the sign and be like what a great sign love that color green right like that's not what we do right we look at the sign and the sign is pointing us to where we want to go what we want to look at where we want to be and so with jesus's miracles uh, what john is telling us is these are acting as signs pointing us towards something and so uh, in this book of signs we're going to see in chapters two to four jesus is engaging with four jewish institutions and then chapters five to ten he's engaging with four jewish feasts And essentially what he's telling the hearer and the reader today is those feasts, those festivals, they are shadows of the form of Jesus who is to come, who is the reality, who is what all of those things are pointing to. That's 
where we're going to be in this book of signs. In a way, it's similar to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus is saying to the hearers, to the readers, the old is gone, the new, the Messiah, has come. All right, so here's verses 1 to 2. So here's, here's the beginning, here's the context, here, here's where we're going to be. We're at a wedding in Cana on the third day, and this is the third day relative to the previous section where he's calling these disciples. So this is actually the end of the first week of Jesus' ministry. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So if we stop and just slow down, sometimes we can just blow by the first verse and say, oh, this is just background information. But, but have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, turning water into wine? Have you ever slowed down and wondered why? Well, there's a couple of things, and, and this will set the stage a little bit, but whenever I do a wedding, and I've done several at this point, I begin with these words, our Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage by his presence at the first miracle of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it talks about how uh, these weddings that we participate in are meant to illustrate or to show us the union between Jesus Christ, right? The bridegroom is how the gospels talk about him and his bride, the church. So every time you go to a wedding and you hear those words, you're sitting here watching a, a picture of how the gospel works its way out. Marriage, as God designed it, is significant. It was back then. It is today. It points us to that mystery of the union between Jesus and his church. And so there's some weight to this. Now, the reason this is important, you go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, hey, uh, all of this is preparing us to be Jesus's bride presented pure and spotless. Again, having stood at the front of a lot of weddings, there's just nothing more beautiful than the bride on their wedding day. There has been so much money and effort put into the dress and the hair and the makeup. And in a way, that's a picture of how Jesus is going to one day present the bride of Christ, his church, those who have faith in him. There's also this picture of the family here. So it says, uh, Mary, his mother, was there. She turns out to kind of serve some sort of function in the catering of this event. And because she was there, Jesus comes. So this was likely a family wedding within Jesus's family. And he brings along these new disciples that, that come. I don't know if they were invited or not, but they showed up. That's how it worked, right? Um, and then uh, if we keep going, here's a distinctive we need to make between our weddings. Today in our culture, weddings are kind of losing their flair. You can get married standing by your chain link fence in your backyard, right? But that's not at all what was going on in this context during this wedding feast. It was a feast that lasted for days, two and three, and in some areas of this world, even longer, right? And so let me just slow us down and say this. Um, Celebration and feasts are actually an important pattern that God sets out even at the very beginning when he began to give his people their law. God loves to celebrate. Have you ever stopped to think about that? We're real quick to go, oh, God gives us all these laws. He's like a wet blanket. He wants to kill our fun. But, but that's not at all how God presents itself, himself in Scripture. Think about it. After he gives the Ten Commandments, the moral law, right, there in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 23, part of the extension of that law, what does he do? He establishes three new feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread around Passover, the Feast of the Harvest, which was the first fruits at the time, the beginning of the harvest, the Feast of the Ingathering. A little bit later in Leviticus 23, he affirms those feasts and he adds another one, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. This was at the end of the harvest. He's not saying, harvest your food and just kind of divvy it out, hope you make it through the year. He's like, no, take some of it and throw a party, your best food and your best wine and have a ball. You fast forward, it doesn't stop in the New Testament. 
In fact, how, how does Jesus describe eternity and in part what it might look like in Matthew 22 and 25? He, he calls it the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's how the whole Bible ends in Revelation 19 to, to the very end of the Bible, where it's basically uh, the bride of Christ being presented in this feast with our bridegroom for all of eternity. Friends, why do we think God is such a cosmic killjoy if this is what he puts forward as this is my character time and time again in his word? You know, I think a part of why he's so into these festivals is because it's a picture of the abundant life God actually wants for his people. Have you ever thought of this picture of the sort of abundance and joy that God desires for you to experience? And if you haven't, I wonder why not. Here's the second part is the problem. There's a couple of problems that arise. So verse 3, when the wine ran out. Okay, full stop. If you're at a wedding back then, that, that phrase is catastrophic, right? So the wine, you know, Psalm 104, God gives us wine to make the heart glad. There's this form of joy that wine brings to these sorts of, of, of celebrations. And so when it ran out, it was shameful and devastating. Back then, the groom paid all the bills, right, for the weddings. All the fathers of daughters out there are going like, why did that change? Like, we really we wish it hadn't, right? And, uh, um, but, but either way, it, you know, it could even go to the point where it brings so much shame on the bride and her family that there are times in the ancient world where the bride's family sued the groom's family for it running out of wine. How about that, huh? Talk about a rocky start to your marriage. Okay. Um, there's a marriage lunch afterwards if that is something that happened to you. Um, anyway, where was I? Um, I really don't remember where it was. So that's catastrophic, right? The wine runs out. Now, um, she turns to Jesus and she's just like, the wine's out. Like, do something is basically what she's saying. But then, you know, kind of the linchpin of the hinge of this whole passage is really verse 4. Did you read it? Jesus said to her when she turns and says, they have no wine to Jesus. He says, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Right, how y'all doing after that phrase right there? How, how you feeling? That, that term woman. How, uh, uh, like, how you feeling about that? I know you're waiting for me right now to say, in the Greek, that term means mommy or ma'am, right? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. It's just, it, it, I don't know if it's just as harsh, right? But it is meant to create relational distance between Jesus and his mom. Now, let me do a little bit of a corrective from our current day and age, right? When everything gets blamed for misogyny and, and whatnot, we could read that as woman, right? And that is not at all where Jesus is going. We need to remember and keep Jesus in context, right? The law says, honor your father and your mother, and Jesus is without sin. And so how he said it, no matter how we hear it in the tone in our mind, he still did it in a way that honored his mother. Can I just say that? But I think this next greek or this next phrase in the greek what does this have to do with me literally means what to me and to you and that is a term that's an idiom that is meant to create relational distance okay so here's at least in part what i think is happening here mary is anxious about the inconvenience of the lack of abundance and she turns to her son and she's like do something about it and jesus is now at the phase of his life and his ministry where he is saying i am the messiah This is not just a mother-son relationship. You must come to me now as the Messiah like everyone else in the world must now come to me as the Messiah. 
in some ways, she didn't know what she was doing in some ways, but, but she was focusing on the temporal problem and missing the abundance in front of her in her son, who is the Messiah. You know, John Calvin, he goes so far as he's addressing certain issues in the church and saying, hey, this is a caution for us to not elevate Mary higher than she ought to be. She is not an equal to God. She is not to be worshipped. Jesus is the only one in this circumstance, in, in general, who is worthy of our worship. So I do think that's part of it. But here's the other part. Did you read the other part of that phrase? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. She would have just been completely confused by this, just like you might be right now. The hour, whenever John uses that in the rest of this book, do you know what he's referring to 100% of the time after this? The hour means when Jesus goes to the cross to die. And so, in part, and we're trying to get into Jesus' head a little bit, and you've got to be careful with this, but I wonder if Jesus is at this feast, and he's looking ahead and going, this is the sort of thing, feast, that I will have for my bride. But in between here and there, guess what he sees? A cup of wrath. God's wrath that he had to endure on the cross so that his bride could be pure and spotless. And so that just creates this tension in this whole scene here. In part, we see that we live in a world that's never enough. And in part, we see Mary missing true abundance for this temporal abundance that's right before. Okay, so um, a number of years ago, I made the mistake of running a half marathon. Uh, it was it was a, it was a challenge for a guy who's kind of my size, and uh, it will be the only one I will ever run uh, for the rest of my life. But one of these things that uh, they have are these little packs of goo along the way. Have you ever seen the little packs of goo they hand out while you're running these races? So you're you're running, uh, you're exhausted. They're filled with all these like amino acids and sugars and caffeines and things that are supposed to help you not be in the agony that you're in uh, at that moment. So you rip the top off and you're like, and you just suck it down. Uh, and, and I will just tell you, it is disgusting. It is, it is absolutely disgusting. It's necessary, right? But it is absolutely disgusting. Now, here was what I was really looking forward to at the end of this race. It wasn't just the end, although I was looking very forward to the end of it. But afterwards, uh, the, the guy I ran with, we ran in Philadelphia. We were going to drive back to Lancaster. And I knew when we were done, our reward was going to Victory Brewing in Downingtown, where I was going to get a bucket of wings like bigger than I've ever eaten before in my life. And so what would you say to me if I'm like, I'm really looking forward to run this race so I can get the goo. I'm really looking forward to run this race so I can get that big old bucket of chicken at the end. Like that's, that was the joy. That was the feast that I should have been running towards. So, so let me just put it to you like this. We do run this marathon of life, right? As people of, uh, who, if we have, have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes uh, we can kind of run into this uh, a little bit of losing our minds and say, you know, I'm running this for the goo. The goo is going to satisfy me, right? And we'll lose sight of the feast that's, the end, that's at the end of it. In a way, that's what Mary had done. But what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, no, I am calling you to the feast. Calling you to victory, <laughs> if you will. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. One, are we, are we looking at our appetites and just kind of getting those little shots of goo as that which will truly give us abundance and fulfillment? Because we're only going to be hungry immediately afterwards, right? Appetites by nature come back, don't they? Have you ever looked at yourself and gone, what are my appetites? What are the things that I go after that I'm just hungry for again the very next time? 
And I think the Lord may want to go, hey, you're looking for abundance in a place that will fail you. Have you looked around there? It could be kind of scary. Here's the second thing. Sometimes we can call out these appetites or things of less abundance that we think are going to be ultimate abundance when we say, God, give me X or I'm done with you. Whatever X is, is usually the thing that we turn to for abundance, which will fail us time and time again. So just do a little heart homework and ask the Lord, Lord, you know, is there a place where there won't be ever enough on this side of eternity and I'm turning to something other than your true abundance in Christ? Here's the solution. And I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, so bear with me for just a minute, right? So before we get into the solution to all of this, there's some controversy in this passage. And, and, and namely, this controversy comes down to, uh, was the wine alcoholic or not? Yes, I'm going to go there for those of you being like, uh-oh, all right, all right? But I come from a place where this passage in particular is thrown up and saying, well, Jesus turned water into like basically Welch's grape juice because alcohol is inherently evil and, and Jesus would never have done such a thing. And, and I just want to say, at least if we're looking at this passage, that's not a very good argument. It's not at all. And the reason I say it is in verse 10, this master of ceremonies, if you will, basically, I'm looking at the wrong passage. Uh, he basically says, hey, you know, when you brought out this new wine, this is the good stuff. People usually bring out the good stuff at the beginning, and then at the end, when they've had their fill or where they've drank plenty of wine, they bring out the bad stuff. And essentially what he's saying is when people have had a little too much to drink and they're not being able to tell the good from the bad, that's when he brings out the bad stuff, right? Because it's cheaper. That's literally what he's saying. And that Greek term there, uh, there's Greek terms for their bellies are full of liquid, and there's Greek terms for they drank to a a point of inebriation where they couldn't tell the difference. This is the latter version of that. Now, Jesus turned water into what we would still call real wine. Now, the wine was different back then than it is today. It's equivalent to more like a light beer than it would be the 13 14% alcohol that we have in our wine. So hear me say that. Now, let me come over here and say, this isn't giving us license to go out and get hammered. It's not. It's not at all. In fact, you go to places like Ephesians 5 where it says, don't get drunk off wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's questions of like sobriety, you know, marijuana's now come into the scene, and it's like, how do we deal with that now? Uh, Oftentimes we'll be like, where does the Bible say I can't smoke weed? And no, grass in the Old Testament doesn't count as marijuana, okay? (laughs) Full stop. Oftentimes we go to God's Word and say, show me all the things that God forbids because he's a cosmic killjoy. And I would love to tweak our thinking to go, how can we go to God's Word and see what he frames positively and go, how is he caring for us by this? That phrase where it says, don't get drunk off wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. What does he say at the end? Be filled by the Holy Spirit. What's his point in that verse? Be under the control of God himself. The positive of drunkenness, and friends, we can get drunk off of anything. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be those little rectangles in your pocket. It can be social media, right? It can be relationships. It can be power. It can be money. Something can make us less sober. The term we see over and over in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 5, 8, he calls us to be sober. Why does he call us to be sober? Because he doesn't want us to have a good time? Well, no, 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded. Why? You have an enemy, the devil, who's seeking to destroy you. When we're not sober of mind, we are vulnerable to the enemy. 1 Thessalonians, when we are not sober, we are prone to fall into theological error. 
If you've been alive for five minutes and you've seen family members or friends or experienced drunkenness yourself, you know we do stupid things when we're drunk. And so God puts this here, this idea of sobriety, to protect us. All right, close the parentheses. Back to the sermon. We're back, okay? Everybody's like, what just happened? Well, anyway. Here's the solution that I see here in this passage to everything that we've talked about, about the lack of abundance and about uh, moving away from uh, that which will truly satisfy. First, we see a picture of faith. Verse 5, do you see Mary's faith? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Friends, when he said, my hour has not yet come, that was akin to Mary saying, go fix that carburetor and him saying, I don't want to go surfing. It wouldn't have made sense. That would not have made sense to Mary. She didn't understand this idea of the cross yet necessarily, but she did have this point of reference where she was remembering that angels visited her in a stable with a kid in a manger. And they said, this is God. And when Jesus said that, Mary's probably going, I have no idea exactly what he's talking about. But even though I don't have all the answers, I'm going to step back and take a step of faith and say, whatever he says, do. I think Mary demonstrates great faith. I think in our lives, God constantly calls us. He gives us just a little bit of information. We can't quite make sense of what he's doing, but he calls us to take a step of faith and trust him. I think that's what's happening with Mary here. But then we really see what I think this pastor is going after is this picture of superabundance. There's a superabundance. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the better wine, I'm the better water, and I am the better wedding. I'm the better wine. Do you see that uh, in verse 6? There were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. That is a lot of liquid. And it says they were already holding water. What does he tell the service to do? Fill it to the brim. Right? Roughly 150 or so gallons of water. I know it's already full of water. Fill it to overflowing. Make it super abundant. He goes on and the steward says, hey, you know, we talked about the good wine and the poor wine. Poor means lesser. Jesus flips that. He's like, these celebrations have the lesser wine. I am the better wine. I am the true wine. Do you know what grapes signify in the Old Testament? Remember, the spies go into the promised land. What do they come out with to prove that the land is abundant? Grapes. Lots of big grapes, right? And so grapes in the Old Testament is this picture of abundance. And so Jesus is saying, not only am I abundant, I am super abundant. I am more than you could ever handle. 150 gallons of wine on the last or next to last day of a celebration, that's like 700 plus bottles of wine. It's a lot of wine. He's overdoing it. Exactly. Super abundance. He is the better water. You know, just briefly, when it talks about these these vessels for water for cleaning, you know, they would go before they go before the Lord. It would be this uh, sign, uh, this sign where they would wash themselves and say, "Now I'm able to go before the Lord." And Jesus is saying, "I'm going to be the one who truly cleanses you before God." And then finally, what I think he's really driving at here is that Jesus is the better wedding. Jesus is the better wedding. Do you know what wine often signifies in the prophets in the Old Testament? When God's people were in captivity because of their sin, because of their rebellion, do you know what wine often meant? The coming of the Messiah. Let me prove it to you. The book of Isaiah, right? They're in captivity. And he says, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. That's sad. That's not good. And that's how the people were feeling. 
But then in chapter 25, right, this is the hyperlinks in John that, that help us make sense of these passages. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, right? So to the nations, this is the promise to Abraham, a feast of rich food, well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Keep going. We will, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death, 1 Corinthians 15, forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's the book of Revelation. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's what wine here drives us to. And ultimately, the story ends here. And we just read it, but, but this is, Isaiah 25 is where this comes from. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain forevermore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is the better wine. He is the promise. He is going to make all the hard things untrue. And this is where he starts his earthly ministry and has his first miracle. It's not just pointing us to the road of suffering, but pointing us to the road of triumph and abundance and joy that he will one day bring. So friends, there's an already not yet to our application of this passage. There are some of us going, man, joy is so far away. Tell me how to get it. Give me the formula and let's just get out of here. And I'm not going to do that. I can't. Because there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on our happenings. Joy is based in something very different. God's word would say joy comes from walking with Jesus and letting him bear his fruit in us. Psalm chapter 4, I read it this week. He says, you put, Lord, more joy in me than all of my basic enemies when their wine and grain abounds. He's like, no matter how much wine my neighbor who hates me has, you put joy in me. It's something that comes from outside of us. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, pain. Joy. We don't just muster it. It comes from abiding in Jesus Christ, sitting in his word, letting his grace wash over us. And even when our circumstances are trash. He brings that joy out. That's the already. But there's a not yet. As I read this this week, I'm thinking of a loved one who through a medical procedure lost their sense of taste and smell. They can't taste. They can't smell. And that will not be resolved until eternity. I also look around this church and I see many who a sermon on a wedding is really painful. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you have a terrible marriage. Maybe the wedding day was the last really great day of your marriage. Maybe you're single for a whole host of reasons and there is just this longing that this verse brings out. And I think, friends, there's a lot of hope in this for all of us who find ourselves in that place of longing. That one day, every unfulfilled desire, longing, unmet attraction, will be fulfilled in a feast that never ends with wine that never runs out and a bridegroom who will never betray and always meet up and exceed expectations. I think that's the hope that this passage is pointing us to. And in verse 11, 
the disciples through this saw his glory and believed and had faith. May we have that same faith, friends. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, what a fitting text for communion. Lord, for my friends who this sermon opens new wounds, reminds them of what they lack, I pray that you will meet them with your abundance of joy. I pray that you will remind them of who you are and that you are with them. Lord, I pray that you will give them the already of joy that can't come by human working, but also meet them in the not yet of the hope of eternity to come. And Lord, for those of us who are experiencing great joy, would you protect us from being complacent of missing what we're reading right here? Always keep our hearts alive to you being a God of celebration, a God who lavishes good things upon us, and a God who is calling us to a hope that we can't even fathom right now. Give us the eyes of faith as we continue to walk. We pray these things in your name. Amen.